Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. In the hustle of our daily lives, we often find ourselves at a crossroads, facing decisions that could reshape our destiny. What if I told you that in those crucial moments, you might not be thinking clearly at all? Shane Parrish, author of the groundbreaking book, Clear Thinking, is with us today, and he's going to be guiding us through the art of recognizing these pivotal opportunities and utilizing our cognitive abilities. You'll learn how to tap into your internal GPS and reach the destination you desire. Whether you strive for love, success, a sense of purpose, wealth, or victory, don't go anywhere. Shane Parrish is here to unravel the mysteries of decision-making and help us all think clearer. And it all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. The New York Times called our next guest the unlikely guru that helps Wall Street think better. He's the genius behind Farnham Street, a beacon of wisdom where he shares insights for life and business. As a sought-after speaker, his influence extends to global stages, and his brain food newsletter reaches over 600,000 readers weekly. He hosts The Knowledge Project, with ranks among the world's top podcasts. His popular online course, Decision by Design, improves decision-making for top executives worldwide. Welcome to the show, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Clear Thinking, Turning Ordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results, Shane Parrish. David, thank you so much for that. You should be in charge of my PR, I think. <laughs> it's fun how, how trying to get people's Greek bio into a short little template there. And yours was one of them. Like, all right, I got to delete this, this, this to make it all fit. But it worked. And it's great to have you on the show. First, start by sharing what motivated you to write clear thinking. Well, I've been studying decision making in one way or another for the past, I don't know, 15 years. And I've been applying those lessons to my own life and to work when I used to work at the intelligence agency or starting four different businesses. And one of the things that I've learned is sort of the principles of good decision making are a bit counterintuitive, but they're almost like this hidden secret hiding in plain sight. And the best in the world tend to do something that the rest of us don't really do. And so I really wanted to explore that. I wanted to apply it and it works. And then I wanted to synthesize all the knowledge that I've gained over these 15 years, and what better way to do that than write and reflect on the lessons that I've learned and how to put them into practice. Exactly. You know, I had the pleasure of interviewing James Clear, author of the mega bestseller Atomic Habits, who, by the way, praises your book with a big thumbs up. And he emphasizes the importance of avoiding an all or nothing mindset. So he says, embrace baby steps. Now, in your book, you delve into why people, whether it be short sprints or marathons, they lose their focus and motivation and it leads them to quit. Can you shed some light on the factors that contribute to this loss of motivation? How can we overcome it? Well, one of the reasons that we lack motivation is that the distance between where we are and where we want to go is big. And so if you think about running a marathon, the professional marathoner, even the casual marathoner, doesn't start the race focusing on the finish line. And when things get rough, you're not focusing on 10 miles from now. You want to just get around this corner. So narrowing the distance between where you are and what you want to accomplish is a great way to boost your sort of action bias, which creates motivation in the process. And the other way, and this goes back to clear thinking at its core, how we are positioned determines how hard the game is. And I use the language with my kids 
about easy mode or hard mode. Are you playing on easy mode or are you playing on hard mode? And when you're playing on easy mode, things are easier. You're more motivated. When you're playing on hard mode, it's like the world is against you. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. One of my kids came home and he gave me his exam and he got a you know, fairly bad score for him. He was a little bit disappointed, but he did that thing that all teenagers do, that even all adults do. And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, hey, I did my best. And he sort of like walked by and that was it. It was almost as if that absolved him of the accountability that comes with the mark. And so I knew being a parent and having played sports when I was a kid, most kids quit on the way home in the car ride. They don't quit because of their performance on the field. They quit for what happens after. And so I, with him specifically, I was like, okay, I'm going to let this calm down. I'm going to let this dissipate. Then I'm going to talk to him. So later that night, I went and I talked to him and I said, hey, you said you did your best. I want to explore that. What does it mean to do your best? And he said, well, I sat down at 10. I read all the questions. I figured out what the points were worth. I allocated my time and I answered the questions the best I could. And I was like, bam, you did exactly what most adults do. They face a decision. They do the best they can in the moment. But I'm like, pause for one second here. Let's rewind 72 hours. Did you study? No. What did you do instead? I played video games. Okay. Did you stay up late the night before your test? Yes. Why did you stay up late? Because I was cramming. You know, I started studying around 10, around 11.30. I went to bed. I got up late. I ate a bad breakfast. I got into a fight with my brother. I was like, you chose to play on hard mode. All of these things. You know how to control the food that goes in your body. You know how to get a good night's sleep. You know you need to study in advance and create a study plan. You choose all of these things. And these things determine the position that you are in at the moment of the challenge. And you chose to play on hard mode. You made it hard. Of course you're not motivated. Of course the test kicked your butt. Now that doesn't mean that if you put it on easy mode, the test wouldn't have kicked your butt. But it would have made it a lot easier and you would have been a lot more motivated when you got there and you did it. And so with adults, it's the exact same thing. Do we do the things within our control before the moment comes to position ourselves in the best possible way to be successful accomplishing our objectives? Yeah, great points, great points. I may be showing my age here, but I remember when I was growing up as a kid watching the original Star Trek series, and I distinctly recall I admired Captain Kirk's. He had this ability to make swift decisions during life and death situations. And I've noticed a similar trait in top CEOs that I've talked to and encountered know they exhibit this decisive nature. And I guess they can innately tap into this gut feeling and just take action. Uh, I'm curious, is this quality something that can be learned or is it inherent? trait that's just some people are born with it can definitely be learned but if you look at what you need for your intuition you need constant environment you need rapid feedback and you need a lot of iterations and those are the three things that we know about honing our intuition that actually leads to a strong correlation between intuition and results now with that said if we take it out of the world of intuition and we go to pattern recognition that's a different thing. What are we trying to recognize? Our minds unconsciously recognize patterns. And if we've spent a lifetime in the weeds, in the dirt, in the terrain, we can recognize patterns. If we're coasting on top, we're only looking at metrics, we're sort of, you know, 23, two years out, we're not going to have that pattern recognition that we need to make, I would say, reasonable judgments given the risk involved. You need to be in the weeds. You need the details. And we live in a world where we tend to skim over things. We tend not to go deep. We tend to just get the surface. And 
that's the illusion of knowledge. And most of the time, that's fine. Like if I pick up a cookbook and I make a recipe, if I follow everything perfectly and it turns out perfectly, so like luck is on my side, you really can't taste the difference between me doing that and a professional chef. But if things go wrong, the professional chef can instantly taste the result and be like, oh, the heat was too high. You didn't sear it long enough. You didn't put enough salt in. You missed this ingredient. They instantly know what went wrong. And when you skim on the surface of things and you just have the illusion of knowledge, you can't tell what went wrong. So when you talk about CEOs at the top of their game who can make these, what appears from the outside to be judgment or intuition, I think they're really recognizing patterns. And that associated pattern matching only comes from a lifetime being in the weeds, in the details, collecting all of these valid sources of information and synthesizing them in their brain. Good point, good point. I know in, in my life, I'm, I'm, so many times I'm faced with two choices, always happens when I'm making significant moves, be it, you know, two places to live, weighing job opportunities or considering two equally qualified candidates for a position. The question lingers, how do people navigate these decisions? Is it through prayer, meditation, hope for divine guidance, or do they just flip a coin? I mean, this fork in the road decisions are tough and I endure them. Well, you know, I had a friend who gave me this advice a long time ago, and, and it stuck with me, which is, if you are faced with two choices, and you think they're both equal, pick the one that's most painful. And that because you would have eliminated that already if it wasn't the right answer, because it is painful. And I thought that that was a really good sign. And it's like your body is fighting back against that. Now, with that said, not all decisions are made in the exact same way. And you don't necessarily need this sort of like heuristic, because often there's more than two choices. Often there's three or four. And often you can take a baby step. And the point of the baby step is to break down your objective. What's the smallest possible step forward that's going to give me information that actually helps me decide which of these two paths. Most people faced with this choice, they just get into analysis paralysis. They stand still. They don't do anything. That's not the right answer. So my advice is pick the path that's hardest or what is the smallest step I can take that's going to give me the information I need to be more confident in whichever of those two paths is the right one? Yeah, I love that analysis paralysis. So many people, like, they just don't even make one decision because they're just stuck and they miss the, the opportunity. They miss that window that opened because you sat there twiddling your thumbs. It's like, make that decision, which just brings us back to those CEOs that, that have learned that ability. I know when faced with decisions, a lot of people, they go to their friends, I'm guilty as that. And problem is it leads to conflicting opinions. And personally, when, when I chose the cover for my book, Food Sanity, the diverse feedback left me more confused than enlightening. So how do you weigh the value of seeking opinions from others versus just trusting your own instincts when you have to make a decision? Well, often we're asking people for their opinion on something, but we're really asking them for taste. So if I go to you and I say, like, what do you think of my book cover? And you have no experience in book covers and you don't read books. You don't go to bookstores. You don't pick them up. Well, the signal strength of that opinion is going to be low from an accuracy point of view. However, it might be high because you're my friend. So I actually overweight your opinion. Now, everybody is entitled to their opinion. That doesn't mean that their opinion should be weighted the same as everybody else's opinion. And I think that when we go to other people and we ask for advice, we get two things. One, we go to experts, like actual domain experts in a particular area. I go to my doctor. I ask him for health advice. I ask him for medical advice. The process by which I go about asking that, I ask really detailed questions. I ask him what his experiences are like, how he reflects on things, what variables matter, why those variables matter, how reliable they are. 
he can answer all those questions. I'm not going to him and being like, what do you think of my book cover? That's not what I'm going to him for. But what friends are really good at, it, it's not these sort of micro details. They're really good at macro situations, which is I'm in a relationship with my partner and I'm feeling this and X, Y, Z. Because what happens is we're in the weeds. And so when we're in the weeds, we see all of these millions of little details. And when your friend is giving you perspective, now perspective is different, right? You're not asking specific questions. You're not trying to gain specific knowledge. You're asking for a different lens into my situation. When they see that situation, all of these irrelevant details just fade away. The ones that are consuming us from the inside, the ones that are causing analysis paralysis. And they can see the silhouette of the situation for what it is, which is like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're talking to me about this because I've thought that for years about this. You guys aren't a good match. Or they can say, here's how you should go about talking to your partner and repairing this relationship. You're caught up in all these little details. None of that matters. I don't want you to lose sight of what actually matters. Here's how you can solve this problem. And then they're giving us this high signal information. And that high signal information is helping us gain a different perspective onto the problem. And if you think about it, the source of almost all of our problems is blind spots. So when we can get insight that removes our blind spots, we can see clearer what to do. And we get caught up in the weeds, right? We think that what we see is all there is. And we, we focus on these minute little details that are you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that they don't matter, but if you were to weight, you know, the top 100 variables that contribute to a particular decision or situation, we start focusing at like 50. Meanwhile, the top three probably account for 99% of the overall outcome. And we get out of that, but our friends can put us back into that because they offer perspective. It's the same thing when you go talk to somebody and you ask for advice you want to be specific about what advice you're asking for, what insight you're asking for. That makes a lot of sense. I'm worried about our younger generation, you know, our future CEOs. We talk about CEOs of today, but the CEOs of tomorrow are the kids. Then they're grossed in these smartphones and tablets and play video games and spend hours scrolling TikTok. There's such this perception that digital bombardment's contributing to attention deficit disorder and impairing brain health. What's your views on the impact of electronic bombardment on fostering cloudy thinking? Well, I don't know. I think about it differently. We talked about this at the very beginning, right? I think about it as there's areas where I want to coast on the surface and there's areas where I want to deep dive. And the internet can enable both of those things. But if I'm unconscious about my pursuit of knowledge, I tend to gravitate towards shallower knowledge. I tend to gravitate towards the things that are going to feed me and make me feel good instead of the things that are going to nourish me and give me insight and give me details and give me enrichment and allow me to create the knowledge I need in my head for the associated pattern matching that I want later in life. But you have to build that one day at a time. It doesn't come to you. And if you just follow the algorithms, they're just going to feed you what feels good. But that's not always what's good for you. Just like we know a sucker or sugar or a piece of chocolate feels really good in the moment, we know long term that piece of broccoli is better for us. Yeah. So basically, so you're saying when, when making an important decision, we shouldn't turn to our two friends, Ben and Jerry. Not a good idea. Not always. I mean, everything in moderation, right? I, I don't judge other people for, for what they do or how they choose to live. But I think online, we tend to just skim the surface of things. And I think we need to go back to what really makes us feel whole and what actually contributes to a meaningful life a bit more, which is like, we need to pick certain areas and deep dive into those and build up expertise or competence in that area. 
So, Trey, you use a word that I think is a big problem for people, autopilot. You say it's reacting without reasoning. How can we shift from autopilot mode to living more intentionally, and what are all the benefits of doing that? Well, there's a couple of ways to do that. One, we sort of talked about earlier, right, which is how your position determines, to some extent, how much autopilot you're on. So I'm going to get angry over the course of a week, but if I sleep and I eat well, that anger is not going to control me. How I respond to those situations of anger is going to be very different than if I don't sleep, I eat unhealthy. So the first thing you can do is position yourself. The other thing is to create automatic rules for situations that you find yourself not responding to in the way that you want to. And I'll give you two examples, one of which is sort of health related. I work out every day. The reason that I work out every day is because I don't have the willpower to work out three days a week eventually everybody loses the battle with willpower. So for me, what I wanna do is I wanna work out every day. Then I don't have a choice. The negotiation in my head goes from, should I work out today to how long is my workout going to be today? Where am I going to fit it in? That's a much better negotiation than, oh, I don't feel like it. I didn't sleep well. Oh, I wanna do this other thing. I'll do extra tomorrow. And that's what I was lying to myself doing. Another thing is who hasn't said yes to something they don't wanna say yes to? I'm on the phone all the time with people. They're asking me to do things and I want to please people. I want people to like me. That is innate in my biology. We want to be liked by the tribe because if we weren't liked by the tribe, we got kicked out of the tribe. And if we got kicked out of the tribe, that meant death for tens of thousands of years. Well, now all of a sudden, I still want to be liked, but it has a different effect. Now all of a sudden, I'm choosing other people's happiness over myself and I'm making myself miserable in the process. You ask, what can we do in these situations? And a great example of how we can control these things is to create automatic rules for situations that we find in common that we want to avoid. And so a great example of an automatic rule on the phone, when you feel like you should say yes or you're inclined to say yes to something you don't want to say yes to is you can say, hey, my rule is I never say yes on the phone. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And that instantly diffuses the situation. And also what it does is it reprograms your mind. You don't even have to consciously think about that. Once you have that rule two or three times, you're not making a conscious choice anymore to apply that rule. That rule becomes your default response. And so now what you've done is you've taken your desired behavior in a given moment or situation and you've turned it into your default behavior. And that default behavior was selected well in advance. And we know that we get emotional. We know that we're humans. We know that we're gonna overreact to things. We know that we can't make decisions in circumstances of stress. That's why we often give a medical power of attorney to other people. It's because we know if we're under duress, we are not going to make the best decisions. Somebody else who's not in that duress can make those decisions. Well, we can do the same thing with ourselves. We can turn over some of our decisions to the best version of ourselves. So when the worst version of ourselves shows up, the best version is like, oh, no problem. We've already decided what to do. We don't eat dessert. We have a rule. My rule is I don't eat dessert. You go out with friends. You know how this is. You're on a diet. They're all of a sudden, they're trying to convince you, hey, eat dessert. You can start your diet tomorrow, just tonight. We're here celebrating all these things. And they fight back against you because they love you. You want to do one thing, but they're nudging you to do another thing. What happens in those situations? You always lose that battle with willpower. So what can you do instead? You can come up with a rule. The rule is I don't eat dessert. And you stick with that rule. There's no exceptions. You always follow the rule. You do that once or twice. People stop pushing back on you. They don't ask anymore. They don't say, hey, you know what? 
you need to eat dessert tonight. No, what they do is they just respect your rule. And then the conversation moves on to something better. And I find that really interesting. We've been taught our whole lives to follow rules, but we've never been taught how to use those rules to our own advantage. And we can do that in certain situations. And I think that that is one of the most underrated aspects of how we can turn desired behavior into our default behavior. Yeah, good point. You you brought up the knee-jerk reaction. I think you're just so spot on. It's like, hey, let me get back with you on that. Don't make big decisions, you know, without that. Unless you're Captain Kirk, then you make those decisions. But for the rest of us that can't fight off these Klingons, let's take our time. So let me ask you this. I've noticed when things don't resonate with my passion or purpose, I can't maintain focus. It's really a challenge. You know, as an English major, anything regarding numbers or math, my mind drifts. And from your perspective, could a lack of clear thinking really be attributed to someone living a life that doesn't align with their passion or purpose? Maybe they're just in the wrong, they're in the, looking at the wrong window. Well, there's an element of that. But I think when you, just to rewind here, when you tell yourself math doesn't resonate with me, that becomes your story and your story becomes your reality. I like to tell my kids the most powerful story in the world is the one you tell yourselves. So when they say, I'm struggling with this math, I say, you haven't figured it out yet, right? The story that you're telling yourself is, I don't like math. And then anytime math comes up, that story just goes on repeat. It's like the number one song you have playing in Spotify. It's a loop. And that loop plays in your head. You got to get out of that loop. I think for clear thinking, at the end of the day, we have to think about what we want to achieve in life. And if we're conscious about that, we're going to choose what scoreboard we're playing by, and we're going to choose our destination. And if we're unconscious, society is going to choose that for us. And if you look at sort of the regrets of the dying, and I talked about this in the very last chapter of the book, which is Carl Pilmer did this study, and he went and he approached people and he said, hey, you're near the end of your life. You've solved the maze. What do you want to tell the people who are just starting the maze? And almost to a person, they said, you know what? I wish I had lived a life true to myself. I wish I had been more conscious about choosing my own path rather than letting society choose that path for me. And if we want to look at a contemporary example of this, which resonates with everybody listening to this, who can we look at? Ebenezer Scrooge. What did Scrooge do? He wanted to be the richest most powerful, most well-known person in his community. What did he get? He got all of those things. And then what did he want to do at the end? He wanted a do-over because he realized that going after those things was meaningless and going after them, especially in the way that he did go after them, the methods he employed to acquire those things was mutually exclusive from living a life of meaning. And I think that we can learn so much from that lesson and we can start thinking about, hey, if I'm 90, you can close your eyes right now and you can go through this thought experiment. Imagine you're 95, you're laying in the hospital, it's your last night alive, you're unconscious, you can't see, but you can hear. And everybody that you know is in that room, everybody that you've been close to, what are they saying about you? What do you want them to say about you? And are you living your life in a way that makes them wanna say the things that you want them to say about you? And that is a great thought experiment we can all do in just a couple minutes. You know what? This is actually really important to me. And I can tell if I go in your calendar, your calendar should match your priorities. When I talk to people, when I coach sort of like hedge fund managers or CEOs, the first thing I always do is like, what are your priorities? And then they tell me and then I'm like, show me your calendar for the past two months. And I'm like, hey, these priorities don't line up with your calendar. So something's amiss here. You're either lying about your priorities or you're not prioritizing what you say are your priorities. 
Yeah, I know in your book you mentioned we, we need to live a more intentional life. And what are practical steps or mind shifts that we can do to lead that? And really, like we talked about values and goals, right? Isn't that the key? Focus on those. Definitely. There's nothing worse than living this unconscious life and realizing when it's too late to do anything about it. And your goals are going to change. Your goals at 20 are not going to be the same as your goals at 60. And that's okay. The point is every year, every two years, you could do it every three months if you want to. I do it every year. What is it I really want to focus on next year? What are my two priorities? Don't do five. You can't do five. Create a list of 10 and eliminate the bottom eight. And that means I don't work on these things. These things are not a priority to me. I have two personal ones and two work ones. And that's it. When push comes to shove, those are the things that matter. And if you go look at my calendar, those are the things where I spend time on. I align my time. I'm very conscious about how I do that. Now, I'm not saying that works for everybody. Not everybody can shrink things down to two, but you can definitely shrink things down a lot more than 10 or 12. You can get down to four. You can get down to five. I think that those things are worth doing. And when push comes to shove, you really want to make progress on the first two. Those are the things that are going to carry the bulk of the weight, not only in terms of achieving the objectives that you want, but also often in meaningfulness of life. Yeah, it's such a good point. I, I was talking to a patient and he said he had a fiance and their big argument why they're breaking up is she wants four kids and he only wants two. And it's like, you didn't even have one yet. And that was the deal breaker. Like have one, two, maybe three. And you go, you know, that's enough, she may say. But she was so adamant that she wanted four. It sounds like it's not about the kids. Yeah, but it's like baby steps, like you said. One, two, two's going good, three. Well, in that case... When people dig in their heels like that, that's a symptom. There's something deeper going on there. That's so true. I know your book utilizes a lot of stories and mental models. Share with us a story or a case study maybe that vividly illustrates the impact of clear thinking on somebody's life. Well, I think the fundamental principle is three things. Can I position myself accordingly so that I'm playing on easy mode? And I'll give you an example at the end here. Can I manage the defaults that get other people in trouble? sort of my emotional default, my ego default, the social default, and the inertia default. Can I manage those things? I can't eliminate them. And I think eliminating them is, is sort of a false choice. I can manage them. And then through those things, can I think independently? And that independence comes down to living a life worth living. And I have a, a good friend of mine, and I won't mention his name because out of respect for him, and I don't know if he would appreciate that. Maybe he would, I don't know. But like he paid off his mortgage and He's done quite well in his life and he didn't want a bigger house. He wanted to pay off his mortgage. And, and this was during a period of interest rates being two, two and a half percent, like the lowest that they've ever been in history. And I was talking to them about this and I said, well, why did you do it this way? Why didn't you get a bigger house? Why didn't you borrow money? Why didn't you? And he said, well, I just want to be positioned because I don't know what's coming in the future. And then a year later, he gets this investment opportunity and that investment opportunity what did he do? He went and he got a mortgage on his house. And that's where he got the money for the investment opportunity. So he used the mortgage, like situation of uncertainty. He doesn't maximize sort of short-term efficiency, maximizes optionality, positioning, can take advantage of a situation that arises. He made six times his money on that investment. And in I think a year and a half pays off his debt, still lives in the same house. And he's just patiently waiting for the next opportunity. And I think that's a great example of positioning. It's a great example of clear thinking. He thought in those moments instead of the circumstance thinking for him. When we're not thinking clearly, the circumstance or situation thinks for us. And unfortunately, that's the reality for a lot of people today, especially in Canada or other countries that don't have 30-year mortgages, where 
you made a decision a few years ago. You thought that the world would look the same. It doesn't look the same anymore. And now you're being forced to sell your house. You're being forced to put in more equity. You're not thinking. You have no ability to think in those situations. The situation is thinking for you. And when you think of positioning, the ultimate form of positioning is that you're a master of your circumstances and you are never forced by circumstances into a bad decision. And if you look at all the greats throughout history, they're never forced by circumstances into a bad decision. Everybody looks like an idiot when circumstances force them to make a bad choice and things quickly go from bad to worse. If you put Warren Buffett in any of these situations where he's forced to make a bad decision, he's going to look like the rest of us. But what does he do? He never gets into a position where he's forced to do something he doesn't want to do. And what does that mean? It means we're living life in a way where we're short term, we're not doing the thing to maximize the return. But what we are doing is the thing to maximize the return over the long term. And people don't understand that. And I think that, that is one of the fundamental things that I want people to walk away with. How do we position ourselves so that we can actually think? It's not like I'm here explaining in this book, telling you how to think. You know how to think. When you reach big decisions, when you think about what job to take, who to marry, where to move to, you know you're making a decision. In those moments, you generally get them correct. You might get the wrong sort of answer in the end, but you know how to think through those problems. You know how to make those decisions. It's these ordinary moments where things tend to think for you, where things go from bad to worse. Those are the moments where you really have to think about, how do I position myself so that this doesn't happen? How do I position myself so that today I'm a little bit better? How do I position myself stronger tomorrow? Well said. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I took a lot of notes. Hopefully our listeners did as well. The book is called Clear Thinking, Turning Ordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results. You can get your copy everywhere books are sold, or you can go to fs.blog forward slash clear. You can follow Shane on Instagram and Facebook at Farnham Street. On Twitter, he's at Shane Parrish. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Dr. David Friedman. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard something today that would benefit somebody you know, send them a link to this podcast. It's available to yougoodhealthradio.com and radiomd.com. And check out our podcast library. Share these segments with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. As I always say, sharing is caring. You can subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and on Apple. More to come. Stay tuned and stay thinking clear.